picking up the story of Acts uh, from chapter 7, uh, where Stephen has just been executed. Um, and they mentioned a, a man named Saul in chapter 7. Uh, and so verse 1 of chapter 8 starts off, And Saul approved of their killing him, that is, Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he had said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandake, Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, 
Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, ask that you would uh, fill us now by your spirit as uh, we think about your words, Lord, that you would speak to us, to our hearts, that you would call us by your gospel uh, to faith in Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen us uh, by your words uh, to live for you, to know you and to love you with all our hearts. Uh, Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, not everything is uh, what it first seems. Uh, I love a good murder mystery. Uh, any, any, any British police drama on television, I, I am there. Uh, and uh, I just, I love them. I eat them up for breakfast. But uh, one thing you always know in a murder mystery is that nothing is as it seems. Uh, if a room has only one exit, you can be sure that there is a hidden door. Uh, or a secret passage or something like that. Uh, or if the victim's watch is broken at 2am, you know for certain they didn't die at that time, they died beforehand when that other person uh, who has the alibi for 2am was, uh, was free. And if the maid looks like the most likely candidate, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's not the maid. Uh, it's the person that you least expect Actually, there's a great Agatha Christie book. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. Oh, it's one of the famous ones. Anyway, but uh, it's brilliant. You'd, you'd never know who it was. It's just, it's impeccable. But uh, nothing in murder mysteries is what it seems. And so too, I think, in this chapter, in Acts chapter 8, uh, nothing is what it seems. Dispersion of the Christians is growth. The despised uh, are welcomed. A radical conversion is a false conversion. And a chance encounter is anything but. This chapter uh, here in Acts chapter 8 focuses on the spread of the gospel away from Jerusalem into all places, places all over the world. And it focuses on the ministry of one man, Philip, an evangelist like Stephen, uh, who we met uh, last week in chapter 7. It shows the triumph of the gospel and the reversals uh, of situations that God loves to work through. It shows not only how the gospel spreads, but it also shows us how people respond to the gospel as they hear. 
The chapter follows straight on from the trial and execution of Stephen. Stephen was, as I said, an evangelist like Philip. He was hauled before the religious leaders of his day and they didn't like what he was saying about Jesus. He didn't, he didn't, they didn't like what he was saying about Jesus being the saviour of the world uh, and God's son and so they stoned him to death. And Luke begins this chapter by kind of taking up the story from that point that by telling us that the very same day that Stephen was stoned and murdered, a great persecution broke out against all the Christians in the city of Jerusalem at that time. Heading the persecution was a man named Saul, a man who later would himself turn to Christ and become a great Christian leader known as the Apostle Paul. Well, Saul set out to destroy the church And he did that here, we're told, by going from house to house, dragging men and women out of their houses and throwing them in prison because of their faith uh, in Jesus Christ. But Luke tells us that this plan, Saul's great plan to destroy the gospel, backfired. The result of the persecution was that these Christians fled and scattered throughout the surrounding regions, and as they went, they took the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ with them. Luke says in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This storm, instead of putting out the fire of the gospel, fanned it into flame. It caused it to spread, like a fire jumping over uh, the barriers that uh, they set up during the bushfire season. What looked like the end of the gospel was actually the cause of a great work of God spreading the gospel to new places and new regions. So easily, I think, we misread the events of our day. I wonder what it would have been like for the Christians uh, in Philip's day, in Luke's day, as the church was scattered throughout all these different places, people who had been great friends who'd been in churches together, who'd known each other, who'd, who'd shared their, their lives and, and their houses, their meals. They'd lived together so close to one another. They'd loved each other. They were scattered throughout the empire because of this persecution. And it would have been so easy for them, I think, to, to think to themselves, well, this is it. It's all downhill from here. There's, there's, no, there's no coming back. so easy for us, I think, in the same way, to fail to see what God is doing. We think we understand so much of what God is doing. We think we, have, we read the events of our day better than we really do. We see difficulties and we think that God has abandoned us. We come up against a barrier and we think that it's impenetrable and that there's no way through. We fail to see that God's established practice is to turn evil to good, defeat to triumph. I love those words in Hebrews chapter 11. Their weakness was turned to strength. It's God's established practice to use a cross in the execution of the Son of God to turn the great evil of humanity into an opportunity to forgive and redeem us. Well, the gospel spreads because God turns persecution into triumph, but the gospel also spreads because God's people scatter. It is ordinary Christians who are scattered over the empire and ordinary Christians who take the gospel with them. 
Acts tends to focus on the apostles and evangelists like Philip and Stephen, and they're an important part of the, the, the work and the ministry of the church. But here we see it's the, the, the lives of ordinary Christians, the, the ministry of ordinary Christians which takes the gospel out. The work of proclaiming the gospel is not just for a few Christian elites, but for everyone. When we ask a question like, how can the church reach plumbers? I don't know if that's the question that you're asking, but you might ask a question like that. How can the church reach plumbers? We tend to answer that question by thinking that the way that the church reaches plumbers is for the entire church to develop a ministry to reach plumbers. The plumbing reaching ministry, uh, and it begin, you know, and we and we set aside a committee to establish the the plumbing evangelism committee. But we fail to realise that the way in God's wisdom that the church reaches plumbers is by raising up Christians who are plumbers or builders who work with those people who take the gospel with them into their ordinary lives. In the same way, the main, uh, one of the main strategies for reaching crafty people, the way that they can hear about the gospel is by Christians who are crafty joining the local knitting group and meeting people and rubbing shoulders with people and taking the precious message of salvation through Jesus Christ into those areas. Those things don't happen by the church becoming the leading supplier of plumbing hardware in the city or by the leading provider of craft courses. It happens by ordinary, everyday Christians like you and I taking the gospel, the good news about Jesus into the context where God has placed us. One of the things that makes the church such a difficult place is that we have so little in common except the gospel. We all have different jobs. We all have vastly different interests. The only thing that we have in common is the gospel. But in God's wisdom, that's actually the power of the church. It's our great diversity which enables us to gather together, to be built up into the gospel and to spread to all kinds of different places and to take the gospel with us. Later in the chapter, chapter Paul or Philip shares the gospel with an Ethiopian man. And that one man would return to Ethiopia and take the gospel with him. It would have been very hard for the 12 apostles and a handful of evangelists to get to Ethiopia. But by reaching that one man and that one man taking the gospel back with him, who knows how many people heard about the gospel through him. Well, we have in our hands the most precious news that the world can ever hear. And though you and I may only interact with certain segments of society, together as we reach those different segments of society, people hear about Jesus Christ. Well, the spread of the gospel looks like uh, it's over with the outbreak of great persecution, but it is anything but, and God uses that persecution to spread the good news. And it's the scattering uh, of the church also leads to the scattering of Philip the Evangelist. And in the rest of the chapter, uh, Luke tells us about some of the fruit of his work. Uh, And the account of Philip's ministry focuses on two people, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, and second, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch. 
As the church scatters from Jerusalem, Philip himself ends up in Samaria. And it's during that ministry in Samaria that he meets uh, and the apostles meet Simon. Simon, we're told in verse 9, was a sorcerer. We're not told whether his powers uh, were real or fake. The Bible certainly has other examples of people who uh, displayed miraculous powers, uh, possessed power to do incredible things by the hand of Satan rather than the hand of God. But whatever it was that he did, whether it was real or fake, the people of his day certainly thought that he was an amazing and powerful figure. And Simon himself thought that he was an amazing and a powerful figure, Luke tells us as well. But when Philip comes to the area, he's empowered by God to do uh, miracles as well, some of the same kinds of miracles that Jesus did during his life in ministry and some of the same kinds of miracles that the apostles did uh, in uh, the early church, in the early days of the church. When the people of Samaria hear the good news that Philip is preaching, they put their trust uh, in Jesus Christ. Notice, please, that they didn't put their trust in the miracles that he did, but it was when Philip preached the gospel that they really came to understand and know who Jesus was. And Simon himself is one of those people who came to believe. But, as with the persecution, all is not what it first appears. When Simon sees the Holy Spirit being given to these believers in a, in a particularly visible uh, and dramatic way, through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offers to buy that ability from the apostles. He says in verse 19, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Peter replies in verse 20 uh, in a stark warning, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. For all intents and purposes, it seemed that Simon was a genuine convert to Christianity, that he'd really embraced the gospel, that he'd really understood what it was about. And yet, as time goes on, it becomes clear that he hadn't really got it. He hadn't really got the point. He'd been drawn to the miracles and the power and not the message. There's already a hint of that back in verse 13. We're told that after he believed that Simon followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. There's this hint already at the beginning that that's what he's really interested in. Simon wanted power, not forgiveness. He wanted prestige rather than to be humbled at the foot of the cross. Well, false conversions and false Christians are nothing new. During Billy Graham's crusades around the world, thousands and thousands of people came up. They came forward at the invitation to receive Christ and to commit their lives to him. And yet thousands and thousands, a huge percentage of those people who came forward never continued in the faith or continued for a short time and then wandered away. A few hundred years earlier in America, during uh, what became known as the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, 
a great evangelist during that period, puzzled over what he saw. What he saw was that people appeared to be thoroughly convicted by the gospel. And they embraced Christ and their lives were transformed. And then three months later, they'd go back to living how they were before. And he couldn't couldn't work it out. But of course, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen, isn't it? He said that for all the seed of the gospel which is sown, some people will refuse to hear point blank. Some people will hear it, it will shoot up quickly and then die out as quickly as it rose. Some people uh, in their lives, the gospel bears fruit, what appears to be fruit, I should say, but is choked out by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And only some of the seed of the gospel which is sown bears fruit 30, 50, 100 fold. Simon's misunderstanding of the gospel provides a great test, I think, for where we're at. And it also helps us to assess where others are at. If they've really grasped the gospel or whether perhaps we might need to challenge them to really seek after Jesus. Well, here's the test. What matters more to you for your sin to be conquered in the death and the resurrection of Jesus or power and success and prestige? What matters more for you for your sin to be conquered in the death and resurrection of Jesus or for power and success and prestige? What do you want from God? Do you want Jesus because you know you need the mercy of God? Because you know that your heart is not right before God? That you know that you need forgiveness? That you know that you need to be transformed and changed to be holy and blameless in his sight? Is that what you need God for? Or do you need God to be a kind of a Mr. Fix-it man? Helping you to get a job, to buy a house, to find a spouse, to help raise the kids, to make you successful to make you beautiful, to make life easy, to make life fun, to make life peaceful and serene? What matters more? Forgiveness and a new life serving God or great power and success and prestige? I think what's so scary about Simon is that he was completely unaware that he didn't really understand the gospel. It wasn't until Peter said, may your money perish with you, that he even began to realise that he wasn't even a Christian. Isn't that utterly terrifying? Well, it's a great test, isn't it? What matters to you? But despite all that, remarkably, Simon is not a lost cause. Peter offers him a remedy. He says that just because he hasn't grasped the gospel yet, that does not mean that he can never grasp the gospel. Sometimes there are people in the church who've been part of the church for a long time, uh, who've grown up in a Christian family and they suddenly begin to think, they suddenly begin to realise perhaps like Simon, that they don't really understand the gospel, that they've never really embraced Christ. 
But then they think to themselves about all those years that they've called themselves a Christian. They think about all the years of hypocrisy, unknowing hypocrisy perhaps, but hypocrisy nonetheless. And they begin to worry that it's too late to do anything. They've been going along this path for too long, it's too late to diverge. And so they do one of two things, they stay in the church and they pretend, they keep pretending. Or they lose hope and they give up on the gospel. But as severe as Peter's rebuke is, may your money perish with you, doesn't get more severe than that. As severe as his rebuke is, there's hope and a remedy. The remedy which Peter prescribes for Simon is to confess the evil in his heart and to appeal to the mercy of God. So you might be at the point that Simon is at. You might be at the point where you think to yourself, I don't think I've understood this. I don't think I'm really interested in the forgiveness and redemption of Jesus Christ. I'm interested in other things. Well, if that's you, where do you start? Peter says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord for forgiveness. That's the place to start. And that's the place to keep going back to it, actually. The place to keep living. Confess that your heart is not right before God. And instead of saying, no, my motives are pure. No, no, I think, no, I I haven't misunderstood. No, I've really grasped it. No, confess to God that you're on the wrong track and that your heart is full of bitterness and captive to sin. Isn't that a remarkable thing to say? Captive to sin. We think that our problem is that we're basically good people and that every now and again we do make a few mistakes and that we need to kind of be uh, forgiven for those minor errors. But Peter says to Simon, no, you're a captive to sin, you're a slave to sin. You're trapped in it and you can't get out of it. And the only person who can set you free from that is, is Jesus. We never have anything to fear from being completely honest with God about the depravity of our own heart because the good news of the gospel is that God is in the business of forgiving people trapped in sin. God is in the business of forgiving hypocrites and God is in the business of rescuing people and cleaning up their hearts. Well, we never find out what happens to Simon because the story moves on straight away to the second man, to the Ethiopian eunuch. We're never told his name. All we're told is that he was an important treasury official in the government of uh, the Queen of the Ethiopians. Throughout the chapter, he's simply known as the eunuch, which seems like an unfortunate title. And it might seem a bit rough that we know him only as a eunuch, But it's important because like the Samaritans, eunuchs were generally despised people. 
But like the Samaritans, we discover here that the gospel is for despised eunuchs as well. In fact, God goes out of his way to pursue this man, this despised eunuch, and he makes sure that he hears the gospel. This is anything but an accidental meeting. In verse 26, we read that Philip is told exactly where to go. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's on that road that he meets this eunuch. And when he sees this eunuch in the chariot, Philip is told by the Holy Spirit to go up to the chariot and to stay near it, which he does. And as he walks alongside, he hears this man reading from Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And so Philip asks this man whether he understands what he's reading. To which the eunuch replies, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And of course, Philip just happens to be there to explain it to him. Isn't that a remarkable coincidence? And isn't it a remarkable coincidence that the passage that the eunuch is reading is Isaiah 53, one of the most well-known passages of the Old Testament among Christians. It's well-known because it captures so well the meaning of what Jesus suffered and it predicts what what Jesus would suffer thousands of years before it took place. It was the perfect passage for Philip to explain the gospel from. Here are some more words from that chapter, from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed." We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What did Jesus do? He took on himself our sins. Just like sheep without a shepherd wander off in all kinds of random directions and get themselves into all kinds of nasty situations, so we've wandered off, gone astray, turned to our own way rather than walked in the ways of God. But God in his mercy laid all that on Jesus. He was crushed and smitten by God for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Well, Stephen would have explained that to this man. And when that man heard it, his heart was filled with joy. And he says to Philip, why shouldn't I be baptised here and now? Or in other words, why shouldn't I become a follower of Jesus? To the Ethiopian eunuch, it seemed like a chance encounter. But it is anything but a chance encounter. God had been behind it every step of the way to make his gospel known so that this man would know and love his son Jesus. Well, so often it's like that in our lives. People come to faith. We come to faith. 
And as we look back later, they, we see they see God reaching out to grab hold of us. I love the story of a friend of mine. I've, I've told it before, I'm sure. He had no interest in knowing God uh, and it was the first night in years that he'd not been smashed or high. And he sat down to watch the television and he watched, ended up watching Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. And halfway through he said to himself, my life is a mess, I need to get right with God. And so he picked up the Bible and started reading. Isn't that remarkable? Not him seeking God, but God stooping down and seeking him and reaching out his hand and inviting him to come to know Christ. The other day, uh, someone was telling me the story of how they became a Christian. They'd been an avid atheist, the leader of an atheist group at a university. One day they were reading the Bible trying to uh, equip themselves for debates with Christians when they found themselves starting to believe. Uh, And he was terrified and so did all he could to get away from the Bible and Christians. But no matter where he went, he didn't seem to be able to get away from them. His friend came home and his boss had just become a Christian and had spent three hours that day explaining the gospel to him. Finally, he asked someone for help from the university Christian group, at which point he discovered that he was on their list of people to pray for, that God would bring that man to himself. It's remarkable, isn't it? Not us reaching out to God, but God stooping down and extending his hand and inviting us to come, taking us by the hand and leading us through the path to himself. And like Philip, God sometimes uses us to be in other people's paths. God sends us down a road, puts us in a workplace, puts us in a conversation, not always as directly as he did with Philip, but God is the Lord of the ordinary as well as the extraordinary. God can unexpectedly plonk us in a conversation at our family Christmas party. He can train us and equip us for 10 years, move us from city to city, so that we're in the right place at the right time to share the gospel with the right person that God has prepared in advance for us to do. God always puts us in the right place at the right time to achieve his great gospel plan. Because God is a God of unexpected deliverances. A God who loves the people that he formed and made. A God who stoops down to our level to speak to us, to invite us, to take us by the hand, to lead us to Jesus Christ. Well, not everything is what it first seems, is it? The persecution of the church is not the end, but the beginning of the spread of the gospel. The conversation, uh, the chance encounter, the conversion, which seems false, the chance encounter of the man on a road, nothing is what it seems. All are the deliberate work of God 
working and calling people to know and love his son. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are in control of the world and we are not. Uh, Lord, because the world is utterly beyond our control. Lord, even the most basic circumstances of our life are beyond what we can manage. Lord, we make plans, set our agendas, seek to do good. And so often things don't uh, turn out as we had anticipated. But Lord, we rejoice that you are the God of the unexpected, the God is who, in, who is in control of everything, who can turn evil to good, who can turn persecution to gospel witness, who can turn a chance encounter into faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you And Lord, as we trust you, we pray that you would help the gospel to go out from us. Lord, we ask that none of us would be like Simon, but that each of us would truly understand and know you for who you are. That without you, we are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And that we need Jesus most of all. Help us, each of us, to believe that and help us to take that same message to others as well so that they might have life in Jesus. We ask it for his sake. Amen.